it's great to have you back with us today for week two of our four-week fall attendance challenge. And uh, we're continuing to dive into God's Word today. Hope you'll be back next week for week three of our four-week challenge. It's going to be an extra special week, as you may have seen in your bulletin already. Next week is our fifth Sunday of the month. Uh, which means we're going to start having family days on the fifth Sunday. Uh, Our kids are going to be in the service with us next week. It's going to be a great worship service for the whole family. Afterwards, we're going to have an ice cream social. There's a sign-up sheet in the lobby you can see after the service today. And uh, it's going to be great. Ice cream, hot fudge, all the stuff and all the trimmings. It's going to be a great week uh, to continue to celebrate our Lord Jesus Christ this fall. Great week to invite friends and family. So I hope you're making plans to join us next week. May even be a family water balloon toss in the mix, but we'll see. All right, we are continuing our series, Seek and Save, a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. If you're using one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 1016, uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 21 for everyone else. And I encourage you, as always, to pull out those message notes and a pen or pencil to jot down some notes along the way as we dive into God's Word today. So Luke chapter 3, and we'll be starting in a moment in verse 21. Now, when we last left left John the Baptist uh, last week, uh, he was not in a very good position, was he? Herod the Tetrarch had thrown him in jail. Herod the Tetrarch didn't like John the Baptist very much. John the Baptist was a very righteous man. In fact, Jesus would go on to say later in the book of Luke, Uh, There has been no man born of woman who is greater than John the Baptist. You know, he would be one of those guys you would consider to be blameless, above reproach. He lived a godly life. He followed God's laws. He wasn't afraid to get up close and personal in people's faces and say, hey, what you're doing is against God's word. You need to knock it off and change. His message was, repent, you brood of vipers. And so he was a guy that told it like it is. And so John the Baptist did what God had called him to do. God had sent him down to this earth to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And then once Jesus Christ would come on the scene, John the Baptist's job was to get out of the way and let Jesus do his thing. And so John was doing exactly what God had called him to, be, to do. But long story short, John the Baptist said something about Herod that Herod didn't like. And so Herod didn't like being called out as an adulterer. He didn't like being called out as a homewrecker, and so Herod put him in jail. And so when we last left John the Baptist, he was in jail. But as we pick up in verse 21 of Luke chapter 3, what Luke, the writer of this book, does is he rewinds the calendar by a few months. And so he flips the calendar back a few months as we pick up in verse 21 of Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist is still uh, approaching that crescendo of his ministry. Jesus hasn't quite yet begun his own ministry. And so as we pick up here in verse 21, John the Baptist is still at the Jordan River, still preaching that message of repentance, still baptizing people, getting ready for Jesus' coming. And so I'm calling this message today, Here Comes Jesus. Kind of a nice title, don't you think? Here comes Jesus. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 21 of Luke chapter 3. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you 
I am well pleased. We're going to go ahead and stop there for now because there's a lot to unpack in these two little verses. We want to make sure we do it well, so would you pray with me? Father, your word here is, is much more powerful than we usually realize when we're reading quickly through this chapter. So, Lord, I pray that you would allow the truths in these verses to really germinate in our minds and hearts and spirits. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Unlock our understanding so we can fully grasp what you want to say to us today. And I pray once again, Lord, that my words would not get in the way of your word. Speak to us, O God. Give us ears to hear. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share the account of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. But if you look at Luke's description here in verse 21, it's pretty short and sweet. You look at verse 21, and it simply says, Jesus was baptized too. Okay, not uh, too much detail shared with us there. So if we want a few more details about Jesus' baptism, we need to flip back to Matthew. And so in Matthew chapter 3... Verses 13 through 16, we read this description of Jesus' baptism. Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Let's stop there before moving on to verse 16. John makes a really good point here, doesn't he? That's a pretty good point he makes. John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. John, by this point, knew that Jesus Christ was Jesus Christ. And so he asked this perfectly reasonable question. If there's anyone who needs to be baptized here, Jesus, isn't it me? Because the baptism that I'm doing, that I've been doing these last several months, is a baptism of repentance, asking God for forgiveness of sin. And Jesus, I look at you, and I can't think of a single thing that you would need to repent from, because everything that comes out of your mouth up to this point has been perfect, and everything you have done has been perfect, and I'm sure your motives in your heart are perfect as well. Why do you come to be baptized by me? I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. And so he's confused. Verse 16, Jesus replied there in Matthew chapter 3, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. It's a really interesting question that John has in his mind. It's frankly one of the most common questions that's been asked over the last 2,000 years about Jesus' baptism. Here's the question. Why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? John had that question, and Jesus' response to him was, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And we kind of scratch our heads and say, that really doesn't help me understand it much better. Okay, why is Jesus being baptized to fulfill all righteousness? Well, what does that mean? That's pretty vague, isn't it? And so what does Jesus mean to fulfill all righteousness? Well, there's at least three possibilities. You may want to jot these down on your handout. Possibility number one, many would say this is the right possibility, but 
we don't know for sure, but the first possibility is that Jesus was baptized in order to identify with those he came to save. He was baptized in order to identify with those he came to save. Bible commentator Albert Barnes says it really well. He writes, quote, When John emerged, the people flocked to hear him and to be baptized. Throughout the whole country, there was an unprecedented movement towards God. And Jesus knew that he too must identify himself with this movement towards God. For Jesus, the emergence of John was God's call to action. And his first step was to identify himself with the people in their search for God. That makes sense, doesn't it? When John the Baptist comes onto the scene, we talked about this last week, remember, as he was saying, be baptized, that was countercultural. That was darn right offensive to most Jews because Jews in those days were never baptized. Baptism was for non-Jews that wanted to convert to Judaism. And so for him to come on the scene and say, you bunch of snakes, you need to be baptized, was offensive. It was hurtful. But they did it anyways because they wanted to turn toward God. There was this unprecedented movement of Israel toward God. And so it goes that Jesus wanted to identify with this movement towards God. John's baptism was part of the people's turning from sin, turning toward God. Jesus wanted to identify with this turning from sin, turning toward God. That does make sense. But that's not the only possibility. Maybe Jesus was baptized, possibility number two in order to mark the official start of his ministry. That would make sense as well, because where was John doing much of his preaching? Standing in the water, right? He's standing in the water of the Jordan River. All these people are coming baptized. And how we see it portrayed in the movies probably is is pretty similar to how it was going down. These people are walking into the water while he's standing maybe waist deep. He's preaching. And a guy comes, and he clearly wants to be baptized. So John baptizes him, and another guy comes, but he just keeps preaching. And so he baptizes this guy. Another guy comes. He's dipping him and preaching at the same time. He's a, he's a multitasker, John was. And so he's preaching. He's teaching. He's baptizing. And so right there in the waters of the Jordan River is where many of the people in Israel were making that turn toward God turning from their sin, turning toward the Lord, and getting themselves ready for Jesus. So what better place for Jesus to begin his own ministry than right there in the waters of the Jordan River, standing right next to John the Baptist, who'd paved the way for him? So that's a possibility that makes a lot of sense, too. Maybe he was baptized by John the Baptist in order to officially start his ministry at the same place where John was doing much of his ministry. And then the third possibility, this is a little bit more technical, but this could be true as well. Jesus was baptized in order to ceremonially cleanse himself before being filled with the Holy Spirit. Before ceremonially cleansing himself, before being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, think back to Old Testament times. A little Old Testament Levitical trivia for you today. Question number one. How many people in Israel were allowed to go into the holiest room in the temple. How many people in Israel? Skip saying one. Anybody else agree? Okay, seven people, right? No, I just made that up. One person. And the one person was the the high priest, and he was able to go into that holiest room, the holy of holies, in the inner room of the temple. How often? 
once a year. So you remember how that temple's laid out. It's like a rectangle. You walk into the temple, and then you've got what's called the holy place. That's where the table of showbread is and the incense uh, altar. And then those lamps, the menorah, the candelabra would be. And then there's this thick curtain. Remember when Jesus dies on the cross, that thick curtain is torn in half that separated for centuries the holy place from that most holy place. And so that high priest would have to go into the Holy of Holies. He could only go in there once a year. And they would, over the the centuries, when this would happen year after year, they start tying a rope around him and some bells on the rope. And they would have that rope coming out of the Holy of Holies, into the holy place, and even, I believe, out the front door. So if he was in there too long, they would figure he'd done something unholy. God had struck him dead. And so they could at least pull him out without dying themselves to go in and get the body. And so this was a sacred thing. And whenever the high priest was about to go in on the Day of Atonement, that one day of the year he could go into the Holy of Holies, before he would go in, he would be out in front of the temple with that holy wash basin, and he would be cleansing his hands, making sure that he was ceremonially clean before going in to meet God in the Holy of Holies. Remember, the Shekinah glory of God resided in that most holy room in the temple, just past the curtain. And so here's how it goes. Some would say that Jesus is baptized, identifying with the high priest in Old Testament times. And so as he is baptized, Jesus, in a sense, is ceremonially clean before that curtain separates. In this case, the curtain is the curtain between earth and heaven. Because what happens after Jesus is baptized? It says, heaven opens And the Holy Spirit descends. And so as the high priest in Old Testament times would go beyond the curtain to meet with God's Spirit, in this case, heaven opens, the curtain is pulled to the side, and the Holy Spirit comes to get up close and personal with Jesus, signifying that his ministry is about to begin. So all three of these possibilities may have been in Jesus' mind. He wanted to identify with the turn from sin and the turn toward God. He wanted to mark the start of his ministry. And he wanted to identify with those high priests who over the centuries, every year, would cleanse themselves before coming face to face with the Spirit of God. And so he wanted to identify with that as well. Now, there are a few other things in verse 21 that I don't want you to miss. For starters, Luke tells us when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Luke seems to be painting the picture of Jesus at the end of a long line, people lining up to be baptized. Now, Jesus didn't push people out of the way to get a better place in line, did he? says, yeah, you need to be baptized, but you know what? I'm the son of God, so I'm just going to cut in line ahead of you, okay? We, we don't read anything about that. Jesus didn't push his place in line. It seems from Luke's wording, and I'm told that Greek scholars, as they've studied the Greek here, have come to the same conclusion, that, that Luke is making the case that Jesus waited his turn, and the turn he chose was last in line. And so I, I like how... It's said in some commentaries, Matthew Henry says this, Christ would be baptized last among the common people and in the rear of them. Thus he humbled himself and made himself of no reputation as one of the least, nay, as less than the least. Isn't that cool? Jesus, last in line, 
wanted everyone that wanted to be baptized to have an opportunity to go first, and then he came. What a humble, amazing Lord that we serve. Amen? We serve an awesome God. Now, I don't want you to miss one other thing from verse 21. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record for us how the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove. But let me ask you, what was Jesus doing when the Holy Spirit descended upon him? What was he doing? Interestingly, when you throw that question out to people, if they haven't just read what's in Luke chapter 3 here, most Christians would say he was being baptized. And biblically, that's not correct, is it? Luke makes it very clear he is the one gospel writer that tells us exactly what Jesus was doing when the Holy Spirit descended on him. He wasn't being baptized. He had just been baptized. Matthew and Mark make it clear he is coming out of the water after having been baptized. And as Jesus is coming out of the water, what is he doing? Luke says he is praying. And as Jesus is praying, heaven opens. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Now, this is a great time to talk about one of these beautiful, distinctive characteristics of Luke. When we had our first message in this verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke, I mentioned to you that there are some unique aspects of Luke's writing that Matthew and Mark don't necessarily pick up on. And so one of the things we talked about in the Gospel of Luke is that Luke includes some of the wonderful hymns around Jesus' birth. We saw four of them in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, remember G, uh, Mary's hymn of praise to God, the Magnificat as it's called. And we saw Zacharias, the Benedictus also in chapter 1. Then we saw the psalm of praise, the angels as they were out on the, in the fields with the shepherds on the night Jesus was born, singing glory to God in the highest. And then a little later in chapter 2, Simeon, as he's lifting up a hymn of praise to God. So that's one of the distinctive characteristics of Luke's writing. He includes these wonderful Psalms of praise. And here's another distinctive I didn't mention to you in that opening message. Luke focuses on the prayer life of Jesus more than any other gospel writer. He wanted you and me to know that prayer was a priority for Jesus Christ. Prayer was a priority for Jesus Christ. What was Jesus doing? He was praying, and it was a priority for him. Years ago, I I taught a prayer class here at FCC, and one of the assignments I gave to the students that were in that class was to, between one week and the next, skim through the entire book of Luke and make a note of every time that prayer is mentioned. And I encourage you to do that as a Bible study this week. Spread it out over seven days. You don't have to read it word for word. Just skim through the Gospel of Luke and either underline or highlight every time prayer is mentioned. And as you do that, I think you'll be pretty surprised with what you discover. When you go through the Gospel of Luke and notice how often prayer is mentioned, you see prayer is mentioned here as Jesus is right after his baptism as the Holy Spirit's coming down, but it doesn't stop there. In chapter 5, we discover that Jesus prayed regularly throughout his ministry. In chapter 6, we see that Jesus prayed all night before choosing his 12 disciples. In chapter 9, we discover that Jesus was praying before Peter gave his good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Also in chapter 9, Jesus was praying when he was transfigured on the mountain and having a, a powwow with Moses and Elijah. 
We see in chapter 11 that Jesus was praying before his disciples, uh, before he taught them the Lord's Prayer. In chapter 22, Jesus prayed for Peter, and Jesus also prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, only Luke mentions that Jesus prayed at least two times from the cross. First of all, he prayed, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And then right before Jesus died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so Luke records for us at the most pivotal points in Jesus' ministry, Jesus was praying before that moment, and oftentimes he was praying during that moment. And so prayer was critical in Jesus' ministry. Luke makes it crystal clear in his gospel account that prayer was a priority for Jesus. And as such, Jesus prayed before and during the most important moments of his ministry. And do you suppose it's possible... You think it's possible that Jesus did this in part to set an example for you and me? You better believe it. Before and even during your most important moments in life, you should be praying. Before and during my most important moments in life, not just at church, but at home or at, at work or wherever it may be, during and, and before our most important decisions, we should be praying because Jesus himself prioritized prayer. I've got to tell you, my mom is certainly no perfect saint. My mom makes her fair share of mistakes, but something I am so thankful and grateful for is that my mom is a prayer warrior. My mom prays before and during just about any crisis that ever comes her way. Some of you have heard me share some of the stories of my mom praying in a time of crisis. Some of these stories of my mom's prayers in times of crisis are absolutely legendary. And I am so thankful that over the years my mom has consistently prayed for me. And my ministry and my life, I'm sure in large part, is due to the fact that my mom has prayed for me over and over and over throughout my life. Don't miss this beautiful, powerful detail in verse 21 here. Jesus was praying as the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Because communication with the Father was a top priority for Jesus, and it should be a top priority for you and me as well. Now, try to wrap your minds around these powerful insights from Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry writes these words, When Jesus prayed, the heaven was opened. He that by his power parted for Joshua the waters of the Jordan River to make a way through them to Canaan, now by his power parted the air to open a correspondence with the heavenly Canaan. Thus was there opened to Christ and by him to us a new and living way into the holiest. Sin had shut up heaven, but Christ's prayer opened it again. Prayer is an ordinance that opens heaven. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. I read these words last week and just thought, wow, these words are so powerful. Sin had shut up heaven, but Christ's prayer opened it again. Prayer opens heaven, knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Sometimes we wonder why the blessings of God aren't made available to us. Quite often the answer is because we haven't prayed. Because prayer opens the door to heaven and allows God 
to do amazing things in our life that he will only do if he's invited to do them. Look at verse 22. Second part of verse 22, it says, A voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Let me ask you, which members of the Trinity were present when this all took place? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which members of the Trinity were present here? All three, right? Pretty cool. Jesus is coming out of the water after his baptism. Jesus is coming out of the water and praying. Heaven opens. The Holy Spirit comes down and descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Does that mean the Holy Spirit was a physical dove coming down? No, it was in the form of a dove. A bird didn't sit on Jesus' shoulder and go, you know, it wasn't just a tweeting bird on Jesus' shoulder. The best description that could be given by the onlookers was, that looks like a dove. Not quite, but it looks like it. Think Revelation. When these images are described in Revelation, they say it's like a, it's like a, it's like a. They've never seen anything like this in their lives. They're using their own language and their own experience to describe it as closely as they could. And so the closest thing they could come up to describe it, it was like a dove coming down. So it wasn't a bird sitting on his shoulder. The Holy Spirit comes down, and then the Father speaks. This is my Son, my loved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all appearing together. Those that do not believe in the Trinity have a hard time explaining this verse here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one of several times in the New Testament where all three are clearly together. The Bible is clear. God is one, but more precisely, God is three in one. The Trinity is clearly taught in Scripture, and this is one of those places. Now, let's move on to verse 23. Have your thinking caps on? Do you have your pronunciation caps on? Okay. You can't see probably from back there, but this morning I went and underlined a bunch of these names and put the right pronunciation in the column because I don't know how to pronounce a lot of these names either. So here we go. Starting in verse 23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nahai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semium, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Johanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Nere, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadab, the son of Ir, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliam, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, 
the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Methalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, thank the Lord, the son of God. Okay, well, we made it. We made it. Let's take a look at that first verse, verse 23. Luke is the only gospel writer who tells us Jesus' age when he began his ministry. He says he was about 30 years old, so maybe he was 29, maybe he was 31, but he was about 30. That helps us get our bearings. And so that's a a nice thing that uh, Luke told us what Jesus' age was approximately when he began his ministry. Now, what are we to do with this lengthy genealogy? I'm just happy I pronounced the the names pretty well. But what are we to do with this lengthy genealogy, especially as 21st century Gentile Christians? It doesn't strike us as one of the meatiest parts in Scripture, does it? And so we're just going to hit some highlights here. Just want to hit some highlights. Luke's purpose, I believe, in sharing this genealogy was to trace Jesus' ancestry all the way back to the very beginning. Now, there are two genealogies of Jesus that we find in the New Testament. The first of those is in Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter in the New Testament, Matthew 1. Matthew gives us a genealogy. Do you remember who Matthew was writing to primarily when he wrote his gospel account? Anybody remember? He was writing to Jews. And so when he gives the genealogy of Jesus... Matthew takes it all the way back to Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. There was no need to go back any further. He's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. He wanted them to know that Jesus was in the line of Father Abraham. He was a true blue Jew. Now, Luke, who is he writing to? Remember, Theophilus was most likely not a Jew, probably a Gentile. Luke himself was even probably a a non-Jew, a Gentile. He's writing largely to a non-Jewish audience. And so it wouldn't mean so much to a non-Jewish audience that Jesus was in the line of Abraham. He wants to share with everyone that Jesus goes all the way back to Adam, the very first man ever created by God. And so it seems to be that his purpose in including this genealogy in chapter 3 was to show us that Jesus Christ is one of us. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, there's no doubt in this genealogy because it goes all the way back to Adam, Jesus Christ is one of us. Amen? And that's an important message for him to share with us. He shares, yes, that he was in the line of David. He shares, yes, that he was in the line of Abraham, but he also shares that he was in the line of Adam, the first man. And Adam, I love this final little phrase, he was the son of God. Luke also wanted to end his genealogy with that wonderful little phrase, he's the son of God. Now, we look at this genealogy. That is, I believe, the purpose of it, to show that he's one of us. But most Bible scholars over the centuries haven't spent their time focusing on this purpose, have they? You know what most Bible scholars have spent their time doing with this genealogy? Most of their time has been spent arguing and fussing about why this genealogy is so different than Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. If you don't believe me, hold your place there in Luke 3 and flip back to Matthew chapter 1. 
if you look at both of these side by side, you see some noticeable differences from the start. For starters, Matthew begins with the ancestor Abraham and makes his way all the way forward to Jesus. Luke does the opposite. He begins with Jesus and works his way backward to Abraham and then backward from Abraham to Adam. And so if you were going to compare these side by side, you could flip them upside down and have them side by side. And you know what you would notice? Between Abraham and David, both genealogies, the names are pretty much exactly the same. But from Abraham, excuse me, from David to Jesus, the names are almost completely different. Interestingly, you look at if both of these genealogies are the genealogy of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, Joseph's dad is even given different names in the two genealogy. In Matthew, Joseph's dad is called out as Jacob. And here in Luke, Joseph's dad, there in verse, what is that, verse 23, his dad is called out as Heli. So Heli or Jacob, which one was Joseph's dad? And then from there, the names all the way down to David are pretty much all different. How could this possibly be? Aha! We have found an error in God's Word, haven't we? There is a mistake in God's Word. Someone goofed. Either Matthew goofed, or Luke goofed, or they both goofed. Either way, God, you goofed, right? Not exactly. Let me give you a couple possibilities. And this is important because as you deal with skeptics that say that this is just a collection of fairy tales, uh, it's, it's just you know, a, a bunch of writings that, that aren't grounded in historical reality, you need to be able to answer that question intelligently. Why are these genealogies so different? Possibility number one. Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, and Luke traces Jesus' genealogy through, through Mary. Look again at Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, and catch this phrase, so it was thought of Joseph. So those that hold to this possibility would say, here's what's happening here. Luke is reminding us of what he told us in Luke chapter 1, that Mary was a virgin when she became pregnant with Jesus, and she was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. And so Luke is reminding us of this when he says he was a son, so it was thought of Joseph. And he then proceeds to give us the genealogy of Jesus through Jesus' biological mother, not through Joseph, because Joseph was only an adopted father. There was no blood connection. So many hold to this view that he he calls out Joseph, but he begins giving the genealogy of Mary. So that would make sense. Heli would be Mary's father, not Joseph's father. And back in Matthew chapter 1, Jacob would be Joseph's father. And so one is the line of Joseph, one is the line of Mary. If that's the case, this is kind of cool to think about. On both sides of his parents, he had roots back to King David, back to Abraham, and even back to Adam. So that's one possibility. The second possibility, uh, this one is a little bit more lofty, so hang with me on this. Don't fall asleep because you need to be paying attention. It's a little tricky. I had never even learned of it until this last week. Here it is. Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy through Joseph's biological ancestors, 
while Luke traces his genealogy through Joseph's, here's the word, leveret marriage ancestors. The word's on the screen there because none of us would know how to spell it otherwise. Leveret marriage ancestors. What on earth does that mean? Well, remember in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, what God said to do if a woman was married to a man and that man, her husband, died before she had any sons. Remember what was supposed to happen in that situation? The dead man's brother is supposed to marry his sister-in-law so that he can have children on behalf of his dead brother to carry on his brother's name. That was very important in Jewish culture, to carry on a man's name. And so in those cases, that was called a leveret marriage. I would be marrying my sister-in-law in order to produce offspring on behalf of my dead brother. And so here's how this could have worked. The reason Joseph's dad is called out as Jacob and Matthew and as Heli in Luke is possibly because Joseph was the result of a leveret marriage. His mom was married to her husband. Before her husband blessed her with a son, he died. And so Mary, it's not Mary, uh, Joseph's mother proceeds to marry his brother. And as he marries, she marries his brother, he gives the son Joseph. So biologically, Joseph would be husband number two's son. But legally, in Jewish law, he would be husband number one's son. Does that make sense? Husband number one would be legal father. Husband number two would be biological father. So quite possibly, Matthew records the biological line of Joseph. And Luke records the leveret marriage line of Joseph. Is that as clear as mud? Jewish genealogy was complicated. That's the takeaway. Jewish genealogy is complicated. So we do not look at Matthew 1 and hold it side by side with Luke 3 and come to the conclusion that there's an error because Jewish genealogies were complicated. I share those two possibilities because... Absolutely, these two can be 100% correct because they're tracing the genealogy a little bit differently, either through the line of Mary in one case or through a leveret marriage in one case. Either way, God's word is always faithful and accurate. There is always an explanation for why there seems to be a discrepancy if you look hard enough and study the culture and the historical backdrop there. Now, I want to share with you three life lessons Before we close today, these are really important lessons I believe we can pull from this second half of Luke chapter 3. Number one, like John's followers, you are part of a movement toward God, so keep moving. So keep moving. You are part of a great movement toward God. Have you ever seen a, a little inflatable raft or maybe a small rowboat out on the lake when it doesn't have an anchor to tether it down? What happens when you've got a little rowboat out on the lake by itself or a little inflatable raft? It just kind of drifts off, doesn't it? It just kind of drifts off. The breeze kicks up, and there it goes. If you don't have it tied down, if you don't have it secured, it kind of drifts off. You know, we're kind of like that as God's followers. You know, we we kind of drift off. And you think of when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. Most of us in this room today have made that decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But what happens over time is... We begin to drift off. 
We say, I want to come to Jesus just like those that came to John the Baptist. I want to press in on Jesus. I want to get right with Jesus. I want to prepare myself for Jesus. But as time passes without even realizing it, we begin to drift off. And I believe God is speaking to us today through his word. No matter how long it's been since you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you need to realize in the sinful culture you live in, we become desensitized to the sin around us, and we have drifted from God more than we realize. And it's time to get back. We need to join that movement toward God. And believe me, I don't have time to share with you today, but across America and across this world, there is a movement toward God among Christians. Christians are praying for revival. Christians are praying that God would move in His church and that also God would move in our communities and bring millions of people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There are prayer movements that have been popping up around the globe in recent years. There is a movement, not just of non-Christians, a movement of Christians toward God. And we need to be a part of that great movement. We need to keep moving back to Him and not allow ourselves to drift off. Lesson number two, prayer was the fuel for Jesus' most powerful ministry. And likewise, it will be the fuel for yours. I know you probably do the same thing I do. You make decisions all the time without stopping to pray about that decision first. I think back to when I bought my house. I wasn't bathing that decision in prayer. I'm glad God was looking out for me and I didn't make some stupid decision. But when it comes down to it, I think back over my life and there have been so many times, even as a pastor, I forget to pray. And we need to do this once again, whether it's at church with decisions we face as a church body, whether it's at work and decisions that are facing us as an employee or an employer at work, at school, teenagers, we need to be praying over our decisions. Don't just pray for your test when you think you're going to bomb it. Pray for all of your work, even the subjects you're good at. We need to be praying for our families. We need to be praying for our relationships. We need to bathe our decisions in prayer. And lesson number three, when you are handed the ministry baton, just like Jesus was handed it by John the Baptist, when you are handed the ministry baton, take it and run with it for the glory of God. Uh, Run with it for the glory of God. Jesus was all about the glory and pleasure of his Father in heaven. And we should be all about our glory, the glory and the pleasure of our Father in heaven. Sometimes someone may come to you. Don't miss this. And sometimes we put our stuff away a little too quickly. Don't miss this. Sometimes I may come to you and say, hey, can you help out with such and such? And your first inclination will be to say, no, thank you. But please pause before you say no. And take a moment, ideally more than a moment, to pray about it. Lord, is this something that you're asking me to do? And Dane just maybe happens to be the big mouth that's voicing that. Maybe someone will come to you in the lobby. Maybe it's Melly who heads up our greeters and say, hey, have you thought about greeting? And you say, no, I never have and I never will. Thank you. God bless you, sister. You need to stop before you say no and say, you know what? Maybe God's speaking to me through that sweet saint back there. And in fact, if Dane's asked me to do something, I'm going to say, Dane, would you mind having Nellie ask me instead? Because it's so much nicer when she asks. <laughs> Maybe someone asks you, have you thought about helping with sound? Have you thought about helping with this? Can you hey, help put a, a chair or a table away after a meal? 
You never know when God is saying, I'm speaking to you and asking you to step up to the plate at this moment in time. When someone hands you that ministry baton, don't be so quick to say no, because it very well may be God's perfect timing and God saying to you, now is the time. Take hold of it, pick it up and run with it for the glory and the pleasure of God. Lord, thank you for ministry opportunities. Thank you for prayer and this wonderful communication link you give us to heaven. You are an awesome God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've taught us through this chapter. And It's so easy to go through this second half of chapter 3 and just fly on to chapter 4 because we get bogged down in all these many names, most of whom we don't recognize. Lord, I just pray that you would just sink these truths into our minds and hearts. These truths about prayer. These truths, O oh God, about joining a, a movement toward you to press in on you. And not allow, allow ourselves to drift away. And this call, O oh Lord, to step up to the plate and swing for you. This call to pick that baton. To pick it up and hold it in our hand and run with it for your honor and glory. Lord, we want to please you, we want to honor you, we want to serve you until that day comes that you call us home. In Jesus' name.